I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in Hong Kong today with Philippe Schaus, who's the chairman and CEO of the DFS Group. Uh, Philippe, it's, it's great to actually meet you in person. I know we're both speaking later in the week at, at an event together in Singapore. Yes, absolutely, at the TFWA, yes. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful view here out of the windows, and although I do see a giant white sheep there in the corner. <laughs> What's the story behind that? Well, that's a survivor of a visual merchandising campaign we did through all our stores last year, as it was the, the Chinese year of the goat or of the sheep. And that one is one of the lone survivor of that uh, 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 spectacular campaign we did all around the world. Uh, it, it, it's actually amazing because, you know, when we were talking earlier and you're telling me the story behind uh, the Duty Free Group, I, I didn't realize it was actually born here in Hong Kong. Yes, yeah, so we are, we are um, our two founders, uh, and in particular Bob Miller, who is still uh, our uh, shareholder, um, came to Hong Kong in the uh, early 1960s to bid for the Hong Kong International Airport, which was at that time the Kai Tak Airport. This was the, the, the world's shortest runway originally. Yeah, that was, well, so that, was the, well, <clears throat> that was the airport where when you were landing, you could see into the people's living rooms, <laughs> living rooms and see how people were watching television or having dinner with their families. I remember I, I sat in a jump seat once as a child and uh, it, was, it was actually terrifying as people were washing that, hanging their washing out the yes, window. <laughs> yes, it was so close to where you were landing, yes. So um, no, so they came here and they won that bid for the uh, airport because they believed in duty-free. And as they started to operate that airport, they realized that it was very much driven by Japanese tourists. Right. And that was the beginning of the big wave of Japanese tourists coming out of the uh, reconstruction of Japan in the early 1960s and the Olympic Games in Tokyo. And Japanese started to travel around the world more and more. And they were uh, very keen to acquire luxury, international luxury brands. So this was, in a sense, one of the first uh, middle class emerging from a you know a non-Western country. Yeah, I mean, apart from the world of travel retail or duty free, uh, before the 1960s, the big luxury brands, the Chanel's and, and Hermes and Louis Vuitton's of this world, were essentially catering to a very happy few, uh, very wealthy Europeans and Americans. Right, um, and it's the, the Japanese were the first real big middle class which embraced luxury and so the luxury brands started to understand that and they started building their boutiques where Japanese were traveling and I don't I know that from my time when I joined Louis Vuitton much much later uh, in, in, in the early 2000s um, that many of our boutiques had been built for Japanese tourists so, for instance, if we had a boutique in Florence, it was for Japanese tourists. If we had a boutique in Hawaii, it was for Japanese tourists. If we had a boutique in San Francisco or Hong Kong, it was for Japanese tourists. And there was a period in the 80s, 1980s, where some of these brands were doing like 90% of their turnover with Japanese middle class. Wow. And so this whole boom of, of the, the Japanese middle class, uh, of course, was also something which uh, uh, was at the base of the FS's success. Uh, on the travel retail side. So the FS was building these airport stores and, and selling perfumes and, 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 and liquor and cigarettes and watches and then and, and luxury bags. 
to this Japanese middle class who was more and more numerous in traveling and who were really at the demand for, for many of these products. So the globalization of luxury was very connected both to, I guess, the rise of a middle class, but also to travel as a concept. Yeah, it was absolutely linked to the rise of travel and the middle class. And, and, and of course, this, this Japanese uh, business grew and grew and grew. And, um, in the, and then in the, um, uh, and as, as the companies had built up all these stores around the world, they started to be interested in catering to the local middle class. Right. And so suddenly you were starting to think, well, if I have a store in Milan and in Florence, maybe I can also sell to an Italian middle class or to a French middle class in Paris or to an American middle class in the States. And so, the, but, but somehow, the, the, I think the Japanese middle class really provided the luxury industry was the means to develop itself. What had, what had to change within the ranks of the luxury brand leadership in order to now cater not for a handful of very rich people in a couture sense to, mass, in a sense, almost mass production for this for this new segment of consumers? Well, I, I think the, 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 the way I see it, the, the, the luxury brands, what, what made them successful in this and also uh, uh, for most of them, make them, uh, allow them to, to, to credibly move from being catering to very happy few towards catering to this bigger tourist group is that they remain they, they always remain true to their own roots hmm. so uh, so they didn't go they didn't go really into mass production i mean most of these brands at that time and still today do a lot of hand crafting they do it from their originating countries hmm. so they kept the values of their company they just had to build more ateliers or more workshops to cater for a bigger quantity of customers, but they basically uh, stayed, uh, stayed uh, loyal to their own DNA, and that way they didn't, they didn't, with some exceptions, but most of the big, well, are today the big brands, they did not uh, uh, damage their brands by suddenly deciding to, to abandon their principles for quality and for craftsmanship and all that. Even now, would you say that luxury products are more bought by middle class members than people who are very well? Oh paid? yes, definitely. So, so in the in the of course after the Japanese middle class, uh, uh, new generations of Western middle classes also uh, became customers for luxury products. Mm. Then, of course, the big Chinese wave came, which started, uh, I could say, ten years ago. And today, the number one customer for many of these luxury brands is the. Chinese, the main and Chinese customer, but uh, 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 so, so so today clearly the, the the middle class on a global base is a very important customer, or maybe the more, or clearly the most important customer for most of these brands. Uh, but, but but the important thing is that the brands have still remained loyal, and that's what made their success to their DNA, to their way of manufacturing, to their way of designing. Uh, they just expanded the scale of it. Right. Is it challenging sometimes to communicate brand values, you know, to a to a new culture? Uh, how do you take sort of the complexity in, around provenance and uh, about a, a brand to a Chinese consumer who may never have really heard about them before? Well, you have a lot of tools. I mean, brands do exhibitions hmm. uh, where they explain uh, in the big cities. They create big exhibitions where they they they, they explain the history of their brand. They explain the the the, the heritage. They show products they made over the last hundred years. They bring in craftsmen into the exhibition to show how the products are actually made today and how they are still loyal and, 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 and faithful to their old manufacturing techniques. 
so it's not done this way. Then it's a lot about building luxurious stores and well have well-trained staff who are able to tell the story of the brand and of the craftsmanship uh, to, 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 to the, the, the audience. I mean, we, we, we used to say that a luxury brand is the result of a careful balance between tradition and modernity. Um, tr tradition because you have to stay faithful to your DNA, to your history, to how you make the products, to craftsmanship, to the quality of the materials you're using, etc. So that's where tradition plays a big role. And then the modernity, of course, because you are living in today's world, so you have to adapt the shapes of your products, the utilization, you create, you create uh, um, uh, um, uh, bags which are adapted to the iPhones and iPads of today, or the cameras, or whatever you have. Uh, so so uh, the fashion world, of course, is a world of modernity where you constantly try to be ahead of the curve in terms of design and all that. So if a luxury brand goes, a luxury brand tries to keep that balance. Mm. If it goes too much into the tradition, it becomes a bit dusty and passe. If it goes too much into the modernity, it becomes short-lived. Mm. So uh, as a, if you run a luxury brand, you are constantly careful to keep that balance between these two extremes, this yin and yang of the luxury industry. <laughs> On the concept of modernity, do you think people are correct when they call Apple a luxury brand? Um, it, it, it's a good question. Because um, uh, they've certainly stolen elements of yes, retail store design yes, and, and packaging and branding. Yeah, absolutely. What Apple, what Apple borrowed from the luxury industry is the sense of vertical integration, you control your selling point, mm. you make sure that what happens in your store is consistent with your brand image. So you control it from the manufacturing and the, and the components up to the end consumer. Um, secondly, uh, Apple has always had a, a very high uh, focus on quality and uh, on, on, uh, on du durability and quality of its products, on the innovation of its products. Uh, where you could question whether Apple belongs in the world of luxury is that inherently, of course, technology is not based on tradition, hmm. but it's based on modernity and development and, and obsolescence. And obsolescence. Uh, you know, you, you, we, we all know that uh, in 100 years, people will still be drinking Veuve uh, Clicquot um, uh, uh, or, or, or Don Perignon <laughs> or Cloudy Bay, um, they will still be um, uh, using fragrances, uh, but we don't know whether their technology will be made by Apple or somebody else. Uh, we don't know where Apple will be because it's not predictable today. Mm. Uh, we all hope that Apple will still be a very powerful brand because it's a beautiful brand. But we know for sure that our iPhone 6 definitely won't work anymore. <laughs> yeah, it will probably be, a, be in the antique shops at that time. <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> uh, so, you know, when we were talking earlier, I, I was really fascinated by the underlying economics of airports and how they've changed. Mm -hmm. uh, could you demystify that a little for us? The difference between, I think you said, aeronautical and non-aeronautical revenue? Yeah, I mean the, the, the I mean the airports are of course at the core of travel. I mean they own the place. They make the link between the traveler and the airline. Mm. Um, without airports, we would not go anywhere. So airports provide all the infrastructure which link the two together. Now airports themselves are financing themselves through their aeronautical revenues, which is derived from uh, the fees paid by the airlines and non-aeronautical revenues, which is everything around parking, food and beverage, um, and then retail. 
uh, which of course we play a part in. Um, and, and in the last years, we have seen a very strong growth in all aeronautical revenues, particularly the retail revenues, which have helped to uh, finance the development of airports and the facilitation of travel around the world. So non-aeronautical revenues and particularly retail revenues have played a very big role in making it possible for all these airports to expand and provide better and better services to their travelers and to the airlines. So, um, so, but it is a delicate balance because, of course, how do you grow aeronautical, non-aeronautical revenues? Extended delays on, on, on flight connections? Well, this, yeah, well, <laughs> there is a link between dwelling time and shopping. So there could be temptation, but I don't think that's, uh, that many air, airports would play that game because in the end, it's the end is all about service. Mm. But, 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 um, but what, you, what you clearly have is that um, non, non, retail revenues uh, uh, have been growing at airports because they have modernized their retail, they have expanded the space, they have, um, uh, they have brought in more diversity, um, uh, they have been bringing luxury, international luxury brands, uh, uh, which uh, and, and 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 premium brands into their into their offering. So there has been a vast movement of the last twenty years uh, in that direction. And every new airport which has been built has been providing a better shopping experience than the previous version of that mm. very airport. And 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 that has been then translated in. Uh, airports bidding out their spaces to the best uh, or the most the high the most uh, uh, daring operators who would then occupy the space and pay uh, rental uh, revenues to the airport uh, for the privilege of being able to provide their services to the consumers and travelers who go to the airport. But one of the difficulties, I think, of the I guess the global upgrade of airports is that, especially when it comes to luxury brands, is that there's an element of repetition. Uh, you you see these essentially the same brands and the same products in the same store displays everywhere. Uh, so what, what can, what, what, I guess, what can brands and operators do to, I guess, revive the relationship or the experience that consumers have? Well, I, I, you know, I think it's a matter of waves. I, I think there was, a, there was a wave where all the airports wanted, needed to modernize. They brought in international operators and international operators brought in international brands. Hmm. And, and all that created a sense of upgrading, but also a sense of similarity between airports. And I think that has been a wave. And what I see as a next wave is going to much more of a localized feeling again, mm. where when you are in Bangkok, you want to know you are in Bangkok, or when you are in, in Paris, you want to know you are in Paris. And that's, and we're already seeing that happening in some of the airports, particularly the ones I just, I just named actually, where you have that sense of feeling because of the design of the airport, but also because of the, 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 the coming back of a more localized product offer. And so for me, the airport, uh, the retail space in the future of the future airport has a blend between international brands, which are just there because that's what the customer is looking for, whether it's, uh, it's uh, spirits or whether it's uh, beauty brands or fashion brands or, 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 or durable products, but then also the best of what that country has to offer or that region has to offer in terms of local products so that you have the sense that when you are shopping at that airport you are you can find something which you are going to bring home which will remind you of the fact that while well, you have been at the Chicago airport or you have been at the Madrid airport and you could buy something in that airport which you could not find 
uh, in another airport. And right. I think that is very important. So the next wave will be a wave of more localization, more the sense of place, more of an experience. Because in the end, also, airports are competing between each other in many places. Right, because you have a choice between Bangkok or the yeah. Middle East as a stopover. Yes, or, 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 or the, most, the most interesting one is the Middle East, where you have a choice between whether you fly via Dubai or Istanbul or, or Doha or Doha or Abu Dhabi or mm. whatever. So there are more and more of these, of these places where airports act partially as hubs and where you can choose which one you, you want to, as part of the, the, the journey, where, where do you prefer to stop over? Where, 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 where is that curation decision happening? Is it happening at the, the level of the operator who chooses which brands to operate with, or is it the brands themselves having a more local strategy in the way they merchandise? So primarily <clears throat> it is the operator who right. will decide what mix of brands and products he wants to bring uh, into that particular location. Hmm. But then, increasingly, we talk to brands and suggest to them that they develop products for a particular destination or for a group of destinations. All right. So that is happening in some, to some extent, where, for instance, uh, we are opening, in this case, a downtown store in Venice in September. And one of our major, uh, or some of our major brand partners are developing unique products which are going to be available just for that store and for the launch of that new location so that we can even within an international brand we can tell a customer look here's a product you will only find in this particular location because mm. it has been developed for that location so there's a there's a sense of um, uh, even within some of the luxury brands the understanding that if they can do a product which is targeted or localized to location that that's going to contribute to the experience the customer will have with that brand. What is the role of technology in travel retail? Uh, in almost every other aspect of retail, both uh, online and also in store, uh, technology is having a very disruptive and transformative impact on experience. But in some ways, travel retail uh, feels probably as traditional as it ever has. Is that changing? Yeah, yeah it, 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 it's, I, I agree. It still feels very traditional, yet technology is starting to play a role in travel retail. And there are many dimensions to this. Hmm. Uh, uh, of course, when you think about technology, you think about the consumer, you think about the consumer having his uh, portable device. And of course, today he can <laughs> compare prices between right. his departing airport and his arrival airport and say, where is the best place for shopping? And so they'll choose where to buy the Johnny Walker at the arrival or destination. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you get this kind, or whether it's maybe cheaper downtown for some products, or whether there's a factory outlet mall not far away from they are going to, where they're going to stay. So the transparency of pricing is, of course, a very important element. Then you have elements of which are less used today by the, by the travels, which we as operators tend to offer more and more, which is like pre-order, uh, options where the customer can, before they even arrive at the airport or, or the downtown duty-free store, they can pre-order or book a product so that when they arrive, they will just pick it up at the counter so they don't have to, to shop, literally speaking. They're they already shopped on their way to the airport. Mm. So, so these, are, these, are, these are, of course, other uh, uh, services we offer. And then what, what DFS does a lot is we, we collaborate a lot with the travel industry per se, with the tour operators both the traditional tour operators and the online travel agencies. And we work with them so that we provide them with information about where their customers can shop. We uh, work with them to bring customers to particular stores. 
so that we uh, can we influence customers in their shopping decision via the travel agency and the tour operator, and that's done very much through uh, t through, through technological applications which we. Uh, develop in partnership with these travel agencies. In, in terms of like a voucher system or, or is it more just about... It uh, could be a virtual marketing. voucher system, absolutely, mm. where when you book a trip with a travel agent, uh, um, an online travel agent predominantly, that online travel agent will tell you that uh, as part of your trip you will receive a voucher to go and shop at that particular airport or that particular downtown store and that voucher uh, is only valid for the time of your stay there and uh, comes with a facilitation of reaching that place hmm. so that you, you kind of make this shopping experience and the value you give to the customer part of the whole trip. So we do this more and more and we try to touch the customer earlier and earlier into the decision making uh, around the trip. There's a big data and analysis component to that. I mean, has, yes. has the rise of those kind of strategies changed the kinds of people and capabilities you need on your back end? It is starting. Um, mm -hmm. Another example to answer that question would be our loyalty program. Right. So we have a loyalty program for our customers. So uh, a customer who shops in a, either an airport, DFS airport or DFS downtown store can register a loyalty program. And it's, and it's like a point system, you know, like the or mile system. So mm. as they buy, they, 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 they earn points and the points give them a status, but the points are also a currency which they can use for future purchases. Now that loyalty system, of course, gives us information about who that customer is and where he's traveling. And, can we, and, and the objective is to be able to predict where he is going to travel next. So if through that database system and that, that loyalty system, we know that this customer is traveling every summer to Hawaii and we can anticipate his next trip and propose him uh, um, uh, purchases or, or, or visits in our stores with some benefits for him even before his trip, then that will be a way through which in the future we'll be able to influence uh, that customer and, 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 and create a value out of that database and, and, and give the and frankly speaking, give the customer better service. Uh, do you anticipate trialing other more disruptive technologies? Like uh, people now in, in conventional retail are using beacons and other kinds of yes. location-based yeah. technologies. We, we, are, we have started experimenting with beacons. So right. when what, you, what have you been doing? Well, in, in some stores, when you pass by the store uh, at a certain distance, the, the, your, 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 your portable device will tell you that there's something special waiting for you inside that store, that there's a gift for you or something like that, hmm. or promotion or something unique, which, uh, which if you, you show the, the message which you receive on your phone, you will be receiving a special gift or promotion or whatever. Uh, so we are starting to experiment with that. Huh? And, and oh, oh, of course, with the danger of overloading the customer with hmm. data. So, 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 so I think at, at this stage, we are, we are testing where the technology works. But ultimately, we'll have to find a clever way not to abuse of it so that it's really relevant to the customer. Because the last thing you want is the customer to just switch their devices off because they are fed up with uh, <laughs> receiving from all the retailers in the street, receiving messages about this and that. One thing that does astonish me with luxury brands is, you know, for an industry which is so focused on the handcrafted and the personalized, you don't necessarily as a customer have a great deal of personal recognition unless you go to the same store. So yeah. their, their, their kind of ability to harvest data on their top customers and across the world 
hasn't advanced as quickly as I would have expected it. Well, in the past, if you go back to the tradition, in the past you had uh, uh, your your best sales associates. They had a client book, hmm. so they had a, a physical book in which they had written down the details of their five hundred or three hundred best clients. Back when so, they were serving the ultra wealthy, yes, and they were kind of recognizing them when they were coming to the store, and all that. Of course, this is today. Uh, 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 getting much more difficult mm. because you have much more customers, uh, there's much more rotation of sales staff. And the question is, you're right, is the technology going to be utilized? And, uh, I read recently that some cities now are using face recognition systems to protect their cities from terrorist attacks. So if, <laughs> if a face recognition system can do that, Maybe one day the face recognition system will tell you through the camera in the store that this customer is Mr. So-and-so and that he shopped already there months ago and that it will, there will be a message going to the earphone of one of your sales associates saying, oh, go go ahead and say hello to Mr. Shaws and thank him for shopping a month ago and buying this particular bag. I mean, and, and by the way, he may also be a terrorist. And he may also <laughs> be a terrorist. So ultimately that will come. We are not there for sure at this stage. I mean, there's right. a lot more um, uh, technology to be developed or, 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 or um, uh, computerization power to be installed in the stores or, or, or linked to the stores to be able to do that. But, 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 tech, but purely technically speaking, absolutely, it's feasible. Will it be, will it happen one day? And, and then you can also wonder, is it desirable in the end to go that far? Because isn't it so also that the customer still wants a certain anonymity? He still wants to be not recognized necessarily, uh, because if, if wherever you go, you're going to be recognized, I'm not sure that will enhance your travel experience. There was a jewelry band that did some work for them. They told me one of the perils of collecting data on their customers is because you could never be sure whether the the, the, the gentleman had bought the jewelry for his wife or his mistress. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. You never know. Yes, and 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 you know we we there's a little anecdote there which was told me in one of our Japanese stores when I was working for Louis Vuitton, where uh, a, a customer came with his wife uh, to the store to purchase the bag. And then the sales associate saw in the system, because that customer was identifying himself, mm. saw in the system that the, that, the, that the customer had already purchased that same bag uh, not very long ago. <laughs> and he said, oh, you already purchased that a month ago. Did you like it? And then the wife started looking at her husband and said, we need to talk. That, that was probably <laughs> the most expensive bag he would ever buy. Yes. So that was a story he was told, but that, that's absolutely right. And, and, and it was told in a training session also to tell the staff to be extremely careful with the data they had hmm. because that data could actually not be be used in a very negative way towards the customer. If, if the rise of China has sort of reshaped the global uh, luxury business, what do you think the next wave will be? Do you think it'll be Africa? Or in, I you, mean, India, we're already starting to see. You know, we had a Japanese wave and then we had small waves like the Russian wave or there was never really a Brazilian wave uh, or uh, an Indian wave. Uh, Turkey, then, Turkey to some extent. They came, a little, but not really. It was mm. very small. I mean, they were very, I don't know how you call a very small wave, but it's, it was not this, it was very small. The China wave is so massive. It has been so important to the luxury industry that there's nothing going to happen, I believe, in the next 50 years, which mm. will come any closer to that. India is not going to be the next wave. 
Africa is why? not growing. Why? Why is that? I, I mean, because India is one of the few economies that is actually still growing. Well, because the magnitude of you have what you have seen in in China it, for two reasons: a, the magnitude of what you have seen in China, the growth of wealth, and in growth of the middle class. Uh, well, I don't see this happening in not even in India in the in the next in the next years. But more than that, um, there is something about. I believe about the national character uh, and and the culture, where uh, Chinese uh, uh, middle class and upper class people who are becoming wealthier want to express their wealth and their belonging through mm. being part of the world of luxury. And in different ways, that can be the purchase of a of a wallet, a bag, uh, a, a drinking a, a special wine or spirits, wearing a watch, uh, up to having a a, 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 a a an expensive car, having a a, a boat, etc. So it's cultural, it, not not it's, economic. It's very cultural. Mm. India is very different. Uh, India has very strong uh, local uh, uh, values. Um, uh, of uh, of uh, of tradition, of showing or not showing your wealth, of uh, um, uh, showing your wealth through more traditional ways. Hmm. Um, uh, I, I'm not seeing it happening in the next years. And actually, uh, um, you know, uh, maybe to illustrate this uh, in in a, in a more. I mean, this sounds very. I would say prejudice loaded, and 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 that it shouldn't be. That maybe if I illustrate this another another way, if you just take Macau, which is one little part of China, uh, and 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 Chinese luxury shopping, for most of the brands, the business they do just in Macau is bigger than the sum of Russia, India, Africa, and Brazil. My goodness! So the dimension of China is just so big compared to anything else. And for cultural reasons and wealth reasons, a combination of both, I don't see this changing in the longer term. So if the Chinese have led to the transformation of global luxury in terms of the middle class expressing their identity, where in the future will the ultra-wealthy actually shop? Yeah, that's a good question. The ultra-wealthy, um, of course, they are, in, they are very much in other categories. Hmm. Um, they are in private jets and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and categories which are inaccessible. Uh, to 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 many of the middle and upper class. Do they have their own um, set of brands, or is it more about non-brands? No, they are in the same brands, but within the brands, they will go for other categories of products. Hmm. I mean, they might go for uh, 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 made-to-order products. They will go to uh, higher um, cost products due to materials, due to handcrafting. So within luxury brands, we have different levels mm. and they would go for the highest level in this, in, this, uh, in, this, um, in this luxury brand. And then they would to some extent go for the same products than the middle and upper class. And that's where brands have to balance their customer base and make sure they never become too popular so because otherwise they will take away from the upper class. And that's, and that's, that's a delicate chemistry. Because middle and upper class people will aspire to some brands because ultra wealthy own them. And ultra wealthy, of course, if they see too many middle and upper class uh, people <laughs> wearing the same brands than they wear, they might move away from those brands. So that's why you have to constantly keep a balance also in your customer base so that you, that you have 
yeah, that it's it's equilibrated. Philippe, it was a great pleasure talking to you and uh, learning your insights on luxury. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you in Singapore later in the week. It will be a pleasure to see you there as well. Thank, Thank you. you very much. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.